Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. All right, welcome everybody to the Great Birth Rebellion. Exciting news is that B is back. We had to do again. The- Tell your friends, B is back, B is back. I missed you, oh, oh. meaning you, Mel, and the listeners. I miss being here. I had massive FOMO over the twin episode, not being there for that one. Oh, I know. And then I had to do two episodes without you, and I'm sure they weren't as entertaining, but I'm so grateful that you're back because. And I'm sure you had to do far less editing. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that was one upside is I was doing the podcast episodes. I'm like, mate, this editing process is going to be so smooth. So, but B's back. I'm back. We're here. That's it. We're back together again for the year. I don't think we're planning another break in the next six months or so, are we? No. No, we're here. Well, All I right. can think is Spice Girls. Together again. Oh, no, that's Janet Jackson. <laughs> oh, I am. I was lost. thinking two become one. Oh, let's just get into it. All right. Well, today we're, we're finally doing pre-labor rupture of membrane. So PROM, P-R-O-M. For term. Us, term. PROM at term. Well, let's kick off. We'll define, let's define PROM. And I'll tell you what we are doing and what we're not doing. So we are going to do pre-labor rupture of membranes. And some people call this premature rupture of membranes. It's That wording's a bit confusing and it makes it sound pathological. So we don't call it premature rupture of membranes. We call it pre-labor rupture of membranes and at term. So we're going to do at term because pre-term, pre-labor rupture of membranes, still P-prom. Also, P-prom. It's called P-prom. Right. You've got to get up with your acronyms if you want to be in the maternal <laughs> world. And yeah, so P, little P, P-R-O-M, prom, pre-labor, sorry, premature pre-labor rupture membranes. That's before 37 weeks. We're not going to talk about that today because it's a bit more complex. It really does need some individualized care. You need to work out if there's a particular reason why that's happening. Sometimes you need quite specific medical care in that circumstance. So we're going to go with term, prom, so your full term from 37 weeks onwards. I just want to acknowledge here the language used around this because a lot of people preferred the term release rather than rupture because the word rupture can seem quite violent and aggressive and release really kind of brings the ownership back to the persons who's pregnant's body who has actually and the baby who've released their own orders so i just want to acknowledge that we probably will use rupture just because it's ingrained in us and it's just well we're probably just going to use the word prom right so just know that that's what we're talking prom. about when we say prom we're talking about when your waters release at 37 weeks or more on their own so it's called, we call it spontaneous rupture as opposed, or spontaneous release, as opposed to somebody breaking your waters for you, which is called an ARM, A-R-M, artificial rupture of membranes or artificial release of membranes. And that's done with something called an amni hook. So a little hook, it looks like a crochet hook, and that's done in the hospital setting or in the home setting by your care provider. So midwife 
or doctor. And we're not talking about that today either. We're talking about when your body and your baby beautifully release your waters on their own at term. Right. And and some people say my waters broke. Yeah, my my waters released, my membranes ruptured. Um, those are all the different terms for the same thing. And I guess we kind of favoring the the medical terminology just so that our international colleagues as well can sort of vibe with what we're talking about. And there's just and spoiler alert, it doesn't just happen like it does in the movies, although mine did. Yeah. Mine released me mid-yoga class <gasps> in Melbourne on somebody else's yoga mat. Stop <laughs> it. Okay. Mine did happen Hollywood style, but typically they don't. Why are we stopping the podcast? Stopping it right here and you need to tell us that full story of your membranes releasing in the in a yoga class on somebody else's mat please we can't you can't progress through the podcast it was my it was my first baby I'd just finished work like four days prior and I just started this five-week yoga class and I remember sitting in it and my really good colleague who was a midwife and I'd been at her twin birth it was the first breech birth I'd ever seen like she was coming to visit me the next week and I was like oh we're gonna be able to do this class together it's gonna be so beautiful and I was sitting there doing these really gentle stretches and I'd had all the pre-labor signs that day that I'd totally ignored because I was only 36 weeks and I'm a midwife so I was telling myself that I wasn't going to birth to 42 I'd had the diarrhea. I'd had, you know, I'd even messaged my husband and I was like, what is this baby? We're going to have to have some serious talks to this baby tonight because it's moving around crazy like. And I had this like period like cramping in the class and we were doing just a really simple stretch. Like I think I was cross-legged and I'm just like taking my arm over. And then I just felt this warm, hot liquid in my undies. And there, at first I was like, I thought I was bleeding and then I just knew. I was like, oh, and I, I was like, right, just stand up and go to the toilet. So I stood up and went to the toilet. It was funny because the after after I had the baby, because I was doing the class at Mama in Melbourne where I, my private midwives were as well. So the class was in the same kind of complex. And so catching up with everyone later, they were like, we thought you might have been doing a poo, but we also, th- so we wanted to leave you. We didn't want to be like a check on you and think that you're okay. I didn't think I took that long, but I obviously <laughs> took that long panicking in the bathroom and they had no pads. I was like, how does this place not have any pads? But just taking a moment in the bathroom to be like, right, I'm 36 weeks. My waters have just released. Okay. I'm about to have a baby. Like, so I'd gone into the bathroom and then I came back to the mat. And I sat on the mat because I'd borrowed the yoga mat. I didn't have my own. And I was like, just get through the class. You'll be right. Just <laughs> so get- you just thought, all right, what is it broken? Just carry on with this yoga class. I was like, just finish the class and then go home. And then as I did the next move, more water leaked out and it like was all over the mat and I couldn't like conceal it anymore. Like I'd just kind of been ironing it with my jumper. <laughs> And it smells like sperm. We're going to get to that. But it smells like sperm. So my spermy baby liquid is all over this borrowed mat that I'd probably, it probably cost me like a dollar to borrow. It was probably free back then. It was 2017. And I just thought, B, you've got to get out of here. And I, and the teacher looked at me. She's like, are you okay? I must have just had horror like all over my face. And I was like, our waters have broken. I'm going to go home. And because I was a midwife, it was just so normal for me to say that. And like, I should, I look back now and just everyone else's face in class was horrified. And the teacher was horrified. She was like, do you want me to drive you home? And I was like, 
no, no, I'm fine. And then my husband's biggest fear was that because we'd just gotten it like it wasn't a new car, but it was like a new secondhand car that the my waters would release all over the car seat. And he was like, you should take like towels with you. And I was like, no, no, I'm fine. And I didn't even care. I think I was just, <laughs> I was like, just get home. So I sat and I just leaked the whole way home. And then oh, I started contracting and I had a baby. But yeah, That's my very was released mid-yoga class. It was it's, great. Yeah, for people listening, it's it's very unusual to just suddenly release your waters, you know, in public. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. yeah. It's not like the movie show it, which is what we want to highlight here. Exactly. So we're talking about pre-labor rupture membranes, and that means, as B's described, is that your membranes break before contractions start. So the characteristic of pre-labor rupture membranes is that you haven't got contractions. So your waters are broken, you're not contracting. Um, I will so- say, though, it's just happened to me twice. Both my labors started this way. And like I said in the one at yoga, you know, I'm not, I wasn't having contractions. I wasn't having regular contractions, but my baby and my body did this beautiful movement when it released. And I don't know if anyone listening to this who's had their water spontaneous release have felt this too, but it was like a little bit of period cramping, a little bit of baby, like wiggling into position. It's almost like he was like, both of my boys were like, okay, we're ready now. Bang, go. And they release them. Not, I'm not saying they did like, well, they probably did a fancy dance move. I'm going to go with they did a fancy dance move to release them. But there was a little bit of cramping and then there was nothing again. Like there was no contraction. So we're not having regular contractions. Most of the time, and I think statistically, what we see is that waters typically release at around eight to nine centimetres. When you're in labour, you've been contracting regularly, your cervix is dilating, and then the waters release. And we often see that as a build-up of pressure, waters release, and then the body continues to dilate and then baby descends into the pelvis and we get the fetal ejection reflex if physiology is respected and allowed in that space, and then baby is born. And I think this is, brings us to a really important point, is what I want to say here. Like it doesn't actually, we don't go, okay, this has happened, now this is going to happen. Everyone is different and every labour is different and every pregnancy is different. But what we're talking about today is you've reached term, you've reached 37 weeks, and then they've released and you're not contracting. Now what? Now what? So if this happens to you, pre-labor rupture of membranes or pre-labor release of membranes, then 60 to 80% of women will go into labor within 24 hours of having released their waters. So and 60 then, to 80% mm-hmm, will go within 24, 24 hours. And by 72 hours, 95% of women will have gone into labor. So that's by three days. If your waters have broken, membranes have ruptured, waters have released, then only 5% of pregnancies will persist longer than three days without labour. So, you know, I think as well these stats are a little bit shady because, you know, these stats are collected within a system of interventions. So we don't know how many women maybe will have gone into labour sooner, uh, later than that or sooner than that, given the right environment. So, but those are the current stats. So that's spontaneous labor. 60 to 80% will spontaneously go into labor within 24 hours. And 95% will spontaneously go into labor by 72 hours or three days. Most likely thing that will happen to you if your waters break is that you'll spontaneously go into labor within 24 hours. And I do think there's a maternal factor 
related to your waters breaking before you go into labor, like you said, your both your babies did that. I've had clients whose labors all started with pre-labor ruption membranes with no contractions. And they're like, yep, this is what happens last time. And the second time I remember I wasn't at yoga the second time because I had a baby and it was four o'clock in the morning. But I remember waking up and just feeling this rush of love for my eldest who was laying next to me. And I just snuggled him and then I felt that pain again. And I was like, this is the pain I had last time. My waters are about to release. And they did right there in bed with my husband and my son next to me. (laughs) And I was like, wow, that was exactly the same as it happened last time, which we often tell women every pregnancy is different, every birth is different. But mine definitely both started exactly the same physiologically and how they felt physically and they, they started the same. And so we can. And talk so that's about, normal for me. So if we talk about kind of why, why this would happen to somebody, now there are. It could be a completely physiological reason, as you experienced, as my clients have experienced in the past. Some women, that's just how their labors start. There's quite possibly nothing wrong, but sometimes it can be a sign of something wrong. And so that's why I think it's important to check in with your care provider if you've had pre-labor rupture membranes, if your waters break and you're not in labor, check in with your care provider and just let them know what's happening because we'll ask some questions. So one, I think one thing we always would like to check is that there's no actual infection that's triggered labor off. So sometimes if you've got a vaginal infection or um, bacterial um, dysbiosis or uterine infection or something more serious, uh, that can cause your waters to break. Your beautiful body's way of saying sometimes, hey, something's not right. It's its way of signaling or messaging us. Yeah. And so the other thing that they have checked is inflammatory markers in the amnion and chorion for women who experience pre-labor ruptured membranes. And they have found some higher level, higher inflammatory markers. So there's some question as to whether or not maybe if there's systemic inflammation in the body, either from being sick or, or stress stress to oxidative stress. we look at that with you know especially with preterm you know we're looking at that more and more now yeah and interestingly women who supplement their pregnancy supplement with fish oils or essential fatty acids which are anti-inflammatory in their action seem to have lower rates of pre-labor rupture membranes so there could be a connection there the other reason why you might experience prom is if you had a stretch and sweep or a vaginal exam by a care provider for some reason and we've got an episode coming up on stretch and sweeps for those wondering the other possibilities is twin pregnancy just from over distension like you're full polyhydramnios so literally yeah the balloon polyhydramnios meaning excess fluid around the baby so excess amniotic fluid correct women who smoke tend to have higher rates of prom so that could be a reason. So knowing, I guess what we're saying is it's not always pathological. Sometimes it's just a physiological way that you're going to start labor, but it, it's, it, it warrants just tapping in with your care provider to let them know what's happened so that we can ask the right questions to determine if you're experiencing prom from a pathological reason or if it's just going to go on to be completely fine. The reason for this episode, though, is it's not typically managed like that in the maternity care system. So it is uh, quite heavily and strictly managed in most maternity care systems and that we're going to explain how 
and look at the evidence around that today. Let's rewind it and go back to the anatomy because we haven't really explained the anatomy first, just for those that, yeah, go ahead and explain the anatomy and then let's explain how they can release. Sure. Let's do that. So when you're pregnant, your placenta is attached to your uterus and then the baby is encapsulated in the, in these two membranes, the amnion and the chorion. So the amnion sits is the layer closest to the baby that's in contact with the amniotic fluid. And then the chorion sits over the top of the amnion. And physio- and it is in contact with the uterine wall. Correct. In contact with the uterine wall. It's the outside sac. Exactly. So there's water inside where the baby is at, in, you know, contacting the amnion, the amniotic fluid. Then there is this sort of collection of fluid between the amnion and the chorion. Now there's more fluid earlier in the pregnancy and then it seems to kind of physically disappear as the pregnancy continues. So if you look at membranes when a baby's out, they look like they're completely mashed together in two layers, but they do slide over each other. So there is a thought that there's actually some fluid in between the amnion and the chorion and that where women think they might have broken their waters, uh, but then it doesn't continue, there's some suspicion that potentially the chorion, so the outer layer, could have broken, releasing the water that's between the chorion and the amnion. But the amnion, which is in contact with the amniotic fluid, where your baby's still contained, hasn't broken. So just one layer. Thinking there's like about a cup between those layers, right? Right, potentially. 250 mils, so a pretty, I mean, Reasonable amount if you, if you if they pull together and come out all together, then it can appear as though your waters are broken and there is some release of fluid, but whether or not you're actually at increased risk of some of the potential complications of having prom, then there's some discussion about that. So, yeah, and I just want to say here, like often we see medical models and we see videos, right, of what the baby looks like inside. And I just want to highlight as we so much around pregnancy and birth and and even postpartum, there is so much that we don't know, especially in pregnancy and birth. There is so much that we still don't know. And I think often with our brains, we often think of the models. But if you actually think about the true physiology and like imagine what's going on inside your body, how everything's continuously moving and changing and shifting. It's not like you've just got this perfect oval-shaped uterus and this perfect perfect oval-shaped sac and then another sac and then the baby in it. It is constantly moving. So as Mel just said, part of that fluid between the amnion and the chorion might come out, but the rest won't because as the baby shifts and moves or the person who is pregnant moves, then that kind of traps it. And, you know, it's this constant evolving, changing space that is really hard to know exactly what it's doing all the time and we still just don't understand it. Yeah. And then, you know, and your waters can break at different places in those sacs. So yes. if you have, yeah, a four-water leak where the, with the water that's in, he- in front of the baby's head or uh, closer down near the cervix versus a hindwater leak where potentially the waters have broken from a higher point in sac. You know, some people like to differentiate between a hindwater and a four-water leak. I mean, for me and my, and we'll talk about this a bit later on, but for me in my practice, where the water's coming from doesn't seem like a significant thing because we always take a bit of a, a wait and see approach, but we'll talk about the approaches later. But B, you were kind of mentioning that 
depending on the type of leak or where the the break in the membranes is, that can sometimes be significant in system-based care. Yeah. And look, this is something that I've definitely seen clinically in my practice. And I really think it comes down to clinical management as opposed to physiology and probably us not truly understanding or respecting true physiology enough. So, you know, I'm going to generalize here, but for water, so imagine that water between the presenting part and the cervix, right? So typically the presenting part will be head down. And I want to say for this talk and what we're speaking about, we are talking about babies that are cephalic, breech babies who have waters breaking. That is a, I mean, waters releasing. You always want to check in with your care provider, 100%. When there's been that trickle and there's been that, mm, have my waters broken? Have they not? What typically happens is people will go into a hospital and there is a test. And we're going to talk about this a bit more in detail, but they'll have the test. They'll have it confirmed that their waters have broken and then nothing will happen. And, you know, we kind of, many of us refer to that as a high water leak, but really, and, and learning from you, Mel, it's probably what's happened is that release of waters between the amnion and chorion. But we've now confirmed through our medical diagnosis or diagnostic tests that your waters have released. And so then you get put on a clock and something has to happen. And what I typically see in those situations is what I like to call the shit show or the cascade of intervention. And those people typically end up with a lot of intervention. And so, yeah, whether it's a hindwater, whether it's a chorion or amnion, it's basically when contractions don't start. And so it's really tricky. I do see this in a lot, though, that that cascade of intervention comes either when there hasn't been respect for physiology and the space hasn't been given for the body to go and the environment hasn't been right for the body to go into physiological labour as it wanted to, or for some reason it hasn't, which in my thinking in physiology, it would make sense that the amnion just hasn't released yet. And so... Mm. And so then the body isn't signaling that it wants to go into labour just yet. But those people, because most hospital policies are that if you haven't gone into labour by 18 to 24 hours, they will want to induce your labour. Yeah, I do think that prom is a really good excuse for a lot of meddling with the, the last days of a woman's pregnancy. And I feel really sad for women who have experienced prom and then spend the last day or two of their pregnancy just coming and going from checks and appointments and medical involvement and sometimes being admitted to hospital. And I just think what a crappy way to spend your last few days of pregnancy when quite possibly everything's fine, which I think is what's motivated this episode is that we keep hearing these stories of women who just have had their last few days really dampened by the management um, and care that they received you know, because their waters were released. I yeah. feel like we're just giving everyone little tastes and we're like, we're going to keep talking about it. We're yeah. going to keep talking about it. We've so got a plan. Ba- basically, your baby is in a fluid surrounded by two beautiful sacs and at some point they can release at any point in your pregnancy, labour, birth, or once the baby's born, those, that's, those sacs can release either simultaneously together or one and then the other. And I think we really fail to to recognize that in the system. That was nothing I was ever taught in my training that one could break and the other couldn't. And that's basic physiology. It makes so much sense. And I think a lot of midwives listening to this today will have a bit of a mind blown moment too, because it's just, we don't talk about it. 
Yeah. And so that can release. And then what we're talking about now is then what? And, you know, I think, you know, you were talking about if this happens to people, you know, those last couple of days are going to be filled with appointments and questions. I think a lot of people will be listening to this episode if it's happened to them. And I hope people listen to this in their pregnancy so they have the information beforehand. But if you're listening to this and your waters have just released, firstly, lots of love, Mm -hmm. lots and lots of love. Secondly, I hope this helps you to make a decision that feels right for you in your body because that's the most important thing. It's got to feel right for you because if it doesn't feel right for you, it's not going to feel right for you postpartum either. Thirdly, yay, you're about to have your baby. How exciting. (laughs) Just excited for you first. Let's bring some excitement and oxytocin and happiness back into this space. Like, yay, you're, you're about to give life to another human. And yes, you can do this. Go and smash it out of the park and let us know about it. But yeah, I would love people to come to this episode in their pregnancy and be informed about it. Okay. So your waters have released. And I think the whole way when Mel and I are talking talking about this, especially if you've come to this with your waters having just released, please keep coming back to what do I want this experience to look like for me? including your pregnancy. What do I need and want this end of my pregnancy to feel and look like? And what do I want my birth to to feel and look like? Knowing that our wants and needs are different. Take a breath, connect in with yourself. What do I need here? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I loved how you touched on the excitement factor of free labor rupture <laughs> membranes, because you know, if ever a client of mine texts or calls and goes, I think my waters are just broken. I go, oh my gosh, how exciting. That means you're going to see your baby. It's like a trailer to a video. You just got like, you, you're in a special secret society that I'm into because that happened to me, but it's like, you get this. Yeah, this is going to happen now. Yeah. Um, once your waters have released, okay, we're, we're on this journey now. This is happening. Yeah. So, okay, so your plans start getting ready for having a baby in the next few days. And, you know, for midwives listening too, I think, you know, if you're sitting at the desk at at a birth unit, women are told, you know, if your waters break, give us a call. So if a woman rings and goes, ah, I think my waters are broken, I mean, let's inject some excitement into that situation rather than like, okay, pack a bag, you'll need to come in, we need to check you. You know, like this is what happens. It's just every day. Yeah, it is because it becomes routine. And I really want to touch on that. Ten years ago when we were practising, right, and Mel's unique because she's gone straight into private practice, but when, like, I was working in a clinical situation. Those midwives who were working back then, this is probably the same for many of you, and and warranted this was caseload. But people used to say, ring up and say, my waters are broken. And so we would ask a number of questions to, to try and rule out any kind of infection or cause of concern. And if it appeared physiological and you and your baby were well, we'd say, great, give us a call when your contractions have started. If I haven't heard from you in 24 hours, I'll touch base again. That's what we used to do. Now, what I see more than anything else is, okay, come into the hospital. And I just think about if that had happened to me, if I'd got in my car from that yoga class and gone to the hospital or gone home and then gone to the hospital, what a disruption to my labor process that would have been. And it's really big. There's a lot of disbelief now around we don't believe that women know that their waters have broken and also women don't trust themselves and unable to 
confidently say their waters have broken. So there's a lot of fear. And I think that's really injected into women because of how we manage it, right? Because of how we go, oh, well, you better come in and get checked as opposed to great. You know, your waters have broken. Go you. How wonderful you're connected to your body. This is, these are your options, right? So we just automatically tell somebody to come in and now we have this test. So we, I think, I can't actually remember when it came out. I reckon I don't reckon it was it it was there when I first started studying or if it was we hardly ever used it and then it became a little bit more common but it wasn't something that we used all the time and now what I see in clinical practice is if you think your wards are broken we use the test on everybody because what we tend to believe and trust is the tool that we've created and so now we have this tool that says yes it's your waters and yes it's not and look I'll say it's really handy in some situations where we may have thought it was your waters releasing and the test comes back negative and everyone goes oh great we don't have to do an induction but more often than not it confirms it and then that puts you on a medical pathway whether you like it or want it or you're going to decline it or not you still you're still on it right? You've still been diagnosed as having your waters released and that has been recorded by the system. And now the system will monitor you and check up on you. And or as will your primary care provider if you're having a home birth, but it's very different. The management and the conversations are very different. So we used to, used to ring up and we say, great, wait it out. And now it's like, nah, come in. And I just think about if you are one of those 60 to 80% of people that your physiological plan, your body and your baby's plan was to labor, if we then look at how the environment affects that, which we know it does, it affects that beautiful, delicate mix of hormones, you get in the car, you drive to the hospital, you might have to wait. Typically, they're going to want to do a CTG. They're going to want to do a spec and an exam and all of that stuff. How does that make you feel? Does it make you feel safe and gooey and excited and loved up and able to have that oxytocin flowing or does it not? Now, for some people, it will. Some people are going to want that. As with everything we talk about, there's no right or wrong standard. There's just what's right or wrong for you. But it is a huge disruption now, this whole let's confirm if your waters have broken. And it becomes quite routine practice, especially in big tertiary hospitals. You go into this very conveyor belt system where this check is done, this check is done, confirm, right, you're all good, go home or get induced. Yeah. And, you know, it's not it's not that uncommon. So it's about 8% of pregnant women will experience pre-labor rupture of membrane. So, you know. At term. At term, correct. 8%. 8%. So, I mean, you know, maybe 1 in 10, 1 in 11 women will have this. So it's not that uncommon. So the fact that, yeah, we've kind of, as with everything in medical, in, in maternity care, we've kind of medicalized this whole process for a lot of women. As you said, you know, sometimes there's some um, uncertainty as to whether or not you're, membranes have actually ruptured whether or not your waters have broken or released and there is a few ways of being able to tell so if if you're in that camp put a pad on and then and then check it check it again and you could do the sniff test which is what b and i were talking about the other day amniotic fluid doesn't <laughs> smell like we it's got a unique smell and and you know it actually does smell like sperm. It does I smell think. like sperm. We went to university. We paid a lot of money to be trained how to smell a pad. 
Smell the pad. But I don't think midwives smell pads anymore, though. And really? I love them. I don't know. I've never seen I've never seen a midwife smell a pad. But I often say to my clients, like, what does it smell like? And they're like, it doesn't smell like we. So it could be another thing. I mean, and and you know, you spoke about the test of how to check if your waters are broken. The other thing it could be is just vaginal fluid at the end of your yeah, pregnancies. Yeah. I don't know, man. Turn into a very slippery, lubricated water slide, baby slide. Yes. You are very slippery and very wet and you have to change your undies a lot and it's not talked about nearly enough. Yes. That is what your body is doing at the end of pregnancy. It is getting all juiced up, baby, to let your baby out. It's getting wet and big and expanding. So yeah, sometimes it's your waters, sometimes it is just fluid. And that is where a vaginal discharge. And that is where the tests are really great at differentiating that if you're unsure. Well, I can give you a bit of a hack because I was one of those women who just like had to wear panty liners and just like, what is going on? We you were very slippery. So slippery. And, <laughs> you know, and I kept saying to my midwife, I don't know. Am I water's broken? This is a lot of fluid. Like I'm changing pads. And, you know, one thing that I did to satisfy myself that to find out whether or not I was actually leaking amniotic fluid or not, and I was not, but I did a quick Google as what the pH of amniotic fluid is. Mm. Versus the pH of what your vagina is. Mm. And the pH is significantly different, like different enough. So, so for those that are scientists and have a pH kit at home, well, are you going to give us a pH hack? So here's a pH hack. Yes. So, you know, well, my, everyone wanted a pH hack. <laughs> you know, if you're kind of wondering to yourself, gosh, is this amniotic fluid or what? Is it wee? Because the pH of wee is different to amniotic fluid mm-hmm. and different to your vagina. So I, mum, at the time was very much into the alkalining diet. You know, if your system is too acidic, then that can open you up to inflammation. So anyway, she was on this alkaline diet and then she wanted to share with everybody how to alkaline your body. So we got given, my sister and I got given a litmus test paper to check our alkalinity in our mouths to check if our system was running acid or alkaline because you want to be more alkaline. So I was like, mate, I could check pH. So boom, I you could easily buy these little roll of litmus paper. Uh, where do you, where sure. does one buy lit, litmus paper? I mean, health food stores, I think, because this alkaline diet is all the rage, right? But you can buy strips that will check your alkalinity. So boom, there was me checking whatever fluid was coming out of me to see if it was vaginal fluid or amniotic fluid. And it clearly by its alkalinity, oh wait, acidity, I can't remember, but I can't remember the exact numbers, but I only just quickly Googled everything. Like I didn't know. We don't get taught as midwives what the alkalinity or acidity of amniotic fluid is. Do you do this with clients? No, because that's, well, I have never thought to like need to. Like there's not been a situation where we've sort of had such uncertainty and this was just me. I didn't even, I mean, my midwife probably doesn't even know this. Shout out. Hello, Emma. But yes, I was litmus litmus testing my vaginal fluid to see if it was actually. She's like, of course you were, Mel. (laughs) Mm, Yes. She's like, no doubt you did. (laughs) 
Okay, so we're not we're mm. recommending that you call your care provider. We're not recommending yes. that you just go ahead and do this on your own if you're concerned. We do recommend checking in with your care provider, whoever they are. Um, but basically, if you are having a lot of vaginal discharge, you're not alone. Is what we do want to say. Yes. You also do know the difference between urine smell and not. And this is where I, I do think we still smell pads clinically if we're concerned actually you know what i'm gonna say no they don't because most people do the test now okay so if fluid is coming out and you're getting a large amount of fluid yes you could have wet yourself but you're going to know what urine smells like you're going to know that 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 is urine coming out of your body so it could be urine it could be extra fluid it could be an extra vaginal discharge or it could be amniotic fluid yeah and there's, so there's a few things that your care provider would do to try and determine what's happening. So first thing, if you think it's happening, put a pad on, put a big pad, not like a panty liner. And then the reason for that is, is you can clearly see the color. So amniotic fluid is either clear, pink, very slightly yellow. But if it starts to edge toward a greeny color or it looks thick and slimy or it has an offensive smell, these are important things to know. So this is what your care provider will ask you about. What, what's on your pad and how often have you had to change it? And is the fluid still coming? So if the fluid's still coming and you can identify the, the color and you can smell it and describe that, if it's offensive, you know, that's unusual. If it smells so like... Offensive is where you go, oh, yeah. right? Like you're offended by the smell of your pad basically. And which is why we still do kind of want to look at it and smell it because if it makes us go, oh, then we're really worried about infection. Right. If it just smells like sperm, then you're like, oh, well, that is not offensive. But offen- offensive smell makes you go, oh, yuck, or oh, like it, you're offended by it, right? Think that we're worried about infection. Yeah, it's unusual. So that'll be the first thing. And I'll talk more about what we'd recommend next if your waters are broken. But at the very first, put a pad on, they'll ask you some questions about that. So why don't we, we'll start by explaining, we'll move in now to explaining some of the common management strategies that you'll experience if you experience PROM. So the reason we want to talk about this is we feel like it's overmanaged in hospitals, but let's tell you what you can likely expect. So you suspect your waters are broken, you've put a pad on and you give your care provider a call. They will ask some questions about what what color was it? What time did it happen? How's the baby moving? Do you feel well? They'll ask you to check your temperature because, you know, the, the amniotic sacs, the amniotic chorion, part of their function, not only do they contain your baby and the amniotic fluid, but they create a barrier that stops any untoward bacteria or infectious agents from moving up from your vagina into your uterus and, in, and to your baby. So the last- remembering the vagina houses about 500 different organisms, right? And they're fine for us to be in there. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes there will be bacterial infections and some of them are fine to be in our vagina, but they're not fine to be around the baby. Yeah. That's the same with all bacteria. You know, we're supposed to have some bacteria in our bowel that shouldn't be in our in our bladder, for example. They'll give us a UTI. If you get a coli in your bladder, you've got a UTI. But if it's in your bum, that's perfect place for it. So, you know, it's all just about it. special not- houses. Exactly. They should stay in their lanes. <laughs> and so we'll ask a few questions. And then, 
but really, if you're going through the hospital system through normal fragmented care, which probably 80% of you listening statistically would be in that model of care, then you'll be asked to attend the hospital. They want to- And you won't be asked to check your own temperature. I love that you mentioned that, Mel, but that it's pretty much just, yeah, coming. Yeah. So, and, and they may not even want to know all those answers on the phone. They may want to know those answers when they, once they see you. Yeah, sure. So, so put a pad on be, is super important. Yeah. This might just be a, this give is giving you insight as to what I would do for my clients. Well, you're much more thorough, A, because the management is different. And B, because you know your clients and you've got that time. So you'll probably have a much longer conversation, whereas we've just answered the third phone call in 15 minutes. And yeah, we know you've got to come in anyway. So yeah, just come in and we'll see you then. Sure. So then I guess women have a decision to make now is you can decide not to go to hospital or you could decide to go to hospital. So if you go, let's firstly discuss what will happen if you do present to hospital. So if you present to hospital, they will want to confirm that your waters are broken. They'll have a look at your pad. Sometimes it's incredibly obvious from a pad. You're like, yeah, that's definitely amniotic fluid. Can confirm your waters are broken. If they don't know entirely, they could do that test that B was talking about earlier. Sometimes they call it an amnishore, but there's essentially tests they can do to check. You know, it's kind of like a swab to check if that's amniotic fluid in your vagina. If, if they can't do that or if they don't do that, some hospitals don't do that, they will offer you what's called a speculum. So if you've ever had a pap smear where there's that little tool that they put into your vagina to open your vagina up, they want to do that so they can visualize your cervix and they'll ask, ask you to cough or bear down or something to see if any amniotic fluid shoots out through your cervix. So they want to visualize if they can actually see amniotic fluid Sometimes they'll do that and then collect that fluid and test it with the amnishore. Like they want to be 100% certain if your waters are broken. So again, all these things you can decide on, but if you go the path of least resistance, this is what's likely to happen. They will. I do want to say that whilst you said most of them, you know, people will look at the pad and be confirmed, like that, confirm it by that. I feel like that happens less and less and less now. I feel like it's like the pad's not even looked at. So if your pad's not even looked at or it's totally like just, yeah, it's not, it's not even included in, in the diagnostic examination in the in the procedure at all like they just go straight for the amnishore test i've just seen that i just saw it so much in the last couple of years like i was like are we not even just looking at and believing the pad anymore it's like no we need the test to confirm so i just yeah that may not happen and again it's your choice whether you have the test or not if you you know and as it is your choice to go in the hospital or not but it's totally your test your choice whether you have test or not if you are confident and you don't feel like you need that test then that's your choice so if you go this is the likely thing they'll probably also offer you what's called a ctg so actually putting you on the ctg monitor to listen and get a trace of your baby to check that it's okay all of which i mean the ctg is not evidence-based for that if you go back to our ctg episode with kirsten small and so unfortunately if you move into the hospital at this point you are on the path to stay there or there's a significant time limit placed on you by when you're allowed to go into labour soon. So, and let's go back to maybe if you choose not to go to hospital, they'll be super concerned about that unless you've got your own midwife. So if you're in a caseload program, that midwife might give you some different advice. She might come out and see you at your home instead. 
She might recommend a later time for you to come into hospital. She might suggest things that you could do in the meantime. And, you know, if this happens, give me a call. But if it stays normal, then, you know, there might be different recommendations. I mean, I can tell you what I would do for my client. Or she may not. Or she Um, may not. She may do exactly the same as a fragmented care model. Yes. And I think this all depends on the hospital. It depends on the midwife. It depends on the policy. It depends on their comfort level. Depends on their experience. Depends if they're already in trouble at work. You know, it it just really depends. And, And actually, I'll even say to my clients, look, if your waters break in the middle of the night and you can see on the pad that the color is normal, so it's clear or pink or a very lightish yellow, and your baby's moving well, and you can't feel anything strange in your vagina, don't put anything in your vagina. That's my next advice. But, you know, one very, very rare thing that can happen with with rupture of membranes is that, you know, you can get cord prolapse, super rare, not really an issue if you're not in labor because your cervix isn't even open, especially if your baby's head down. But I'd say if you and your baby have been well, it's more for people who have like multiple pregnancies or polyhydramnios, like we talked about before, or that baby's head's not engaged or baby's in a position like transverse, for example, in which case your care provider would have spoke to you about it beforehand. But if, if you're well, you're feeling well, you're connected with your baby, it's moving well, then yeah, you're going to tell them to pop a pad on. And call you in the morning because you don't want to be woken up. I don't need to be woken up for ruptured membranes because I don't go out and immediately visit those women. That's because it's not necessarily a pathological situation. So I do say to them, check in with your body. How are you feeling? Are you feeling well? Do you think that, like, did you have some strange vaginal discharge in the days before? Do you have a urinary tract infection? Is there any pain or bleeding? Uh, Yeah, how's your baby moving? And then I'll also advise them to just check their temperature, get a baseline temperature. What is it? Check it every four to six hours and keep checking in with any with, with your uterus. Is there any pain or tenderness? Change in the smell of the waters, increasing your temperature above 37.5. And if all of that checks out, I'm just like, put a pad on, have a rest. You're probably going to have your baby soon. Congratulations. I'll come see you in the morning. So I just want to say here too, if you're connected with your body, which many of us aren't anymore, but if I remember when my waters broke and I just took a minute to connect in, I mean, I was 36, four, so I was breaking all the rules, but I was like, I feel fine. My baby's fine. This is physiological, right? If in my gut I'd been like, oh, something's wrong. And that instinct is what, you know, really alerts us to what's going on. So really that's a part of this process too, checking in. Does this feel like a normal process for your labor or are you concerned? Because if you're concerned, I want to hear, I want to hear from you. Totally. And my top, top, top advice to people with pre-labor option membranes is do not, under any circumstances, put anything in your vagina, not your fingers, don't have sex. I would personally recommend not having a vaginal exam or a speculum or anything upwards. Yeah, avoid a bath if you can. You know, we want to prevent any upward ascending infections. And we know very clearly from research that internal vaginal exams, digital vaginal exams with fingers and probably a speculum, there's a direct correlation between the number of vaginal exams you have and an increased risk of infection. So keep everything out of your vagina. So you've got. You've basically got some options. Your option is to just 
sit at home and wait and check on yourself and the colour of the waters and the movement of the baby and your temperature and the smell of how everything is and how you're feeling and wait for labour to start. There's a 60 to 8% chance that'll happen in the first 24 hours. You could agree to attend hospital and have a check there. You could agree or not to the speculum or internal check. You could agree or not to having an amnesure done. You could. And you could agree or not to having a CTG. Having a CTG. You can go there just for some advice if you wanted to and just say, well, what would you have me do next? What do you think I should do next? Get some advice, ask all of your questions, and then make a decision. They might suggest that you stay in hospital until you go into labor, or they might suggest an immediate induction. They might suggest oral or IV antibiotics and admission to the antenatal ward, particularly if they're having a busy day or birth unit and they don't have time to induce you, then they will sit you on the antenatal ward until they are ready. So there's so many possible options. So B was talking about before, have a think, what do you want? What do you feel like you need? Well, there is some research about women's experience of prom and actually overall, Women had, they reported more satisfying experience having been induced prior to 24 hours than the waiting process. But I suspect that for them, the waiting process involved a lot of medical checking, a lot of time in hospital away from their family, potential internal examinations, crappy hospital food, fear-mongering from their care provider, you know, this this ticking time that they, so their last 24 hours of their pregnancy was a really bad experience and really upsetting. Or 48 or 72 hours, yeah. Biggest thing here that we haven't mentioned yet it, that often determines what path you go down is whether you have consented to the GBS test or not. So if you consent to the GBS test and if you if that comes back positive, you will be recommended then and there to have an induction once your waters break straight away. And this is if you haven't listened to the GBS episode, go back and listen to it because it's super important in you deciding what you do here. So again, you still have options. The option that will be presented to you is that your labor be induced. And what I have seen from the debriefs I've done not from the clinical care that I provided, but from the debriefs that I've done, is that uh, people will be actually in labour. They'll be in beautiful labour already. Their bodies will be starting to do their own thing and they'll still be commenced on the syntocin and drip. And that is barbaric. I think that's where the cascade of intervention comes in, is that if you've consented to the GBS swab way back, you know, in your pregnancy, and then you've got preterm rupture of membranes, then boom, you're in, in automatically on the induction train. Yeah, and we talk about cascade of intervention so much in labour, but really what I'm seeing is the cascade of intervention is starting earlier and earlier and earlier in pregnancy with extra ultrasounds, antenatal vaginal examinations, booking inductions from 37 weeks just in case the booking system gets booked out and the GBS test, you know, and then it's and the car ride. You know, it once your waters break, going into hospital to have that confirmed is an intervention yeah your labor has been disturbed it's yeah. it it has it's been disturbed and yeah. then that the more your labor is disturbed the more questions you have to answer the more decisions you have to make the more you're interrupting the physiological process that 
likes to be completely undisturbed. Everything is a disruption. So therefore, a disruption is an intervention. And so we want really in this time to be doing oxytocin enhancing things because, you know, there is a, a time limit for how long your waters can be broken before the chances of some complications could arise. So ideally, you'll go into labor within the next 24 to three day, 24 to 76 hours. And so 72. you want 72, 72 hours, right? Exactly. Three days, one to three days. So yeah, we want to do oxytocin enhancing things to get contractions going. So there's a variety of things that you'll be presented with, but here on the Great Birth Rebellion, we always like to really go back to the research, right? So what we know that policy and procedure don't always line up with actual research. And look, honestly, probably some of my stuff, some of my practices don't necessarily line up with research either, but I'll always favor the woman's preference to it trumps everything. So should we have a look at what does the research say about management options for women? And I want to revisit the GBS thing as well. Actually, I've got that on my list of things to chat about. Mm. Well, actually, there's not much research considering that most hospital policies are to induce women within 18 to 24 hours of rupture membranes unless they have GBS, in which case you'll be offered immediate induction. But that's not really necessarily where the research is sitting. At a very um, crude read, elemental read of the research, you could probably easily conclude that induction of labour is a good idea. However, I dug really super deep into this research. And the big thing that everyone worries about with ruptured membranes is the risk of infection to the woman and the risk of infection to the baby. That's pretty much what's governing their thought process behind all of their suggestions for your management. So actually, B and I did sit down with an author the other day of the Cochrane Review that's called uh, Planned Early Birth, so with induction, versus Expected Management for Pre-Labor Rupture of Membranes at Term. So this paper compared planned induction, so early birth, to just waiting for labor to start. So uh, we sat down with her so we can chat through some of this anyway, based on what she said, but also obviously I've gone into all the research. So I'm going to start by talking about this Cochrane paper. So you can Google it. It's in the research folder, resource folder as well if you're on the mailing list for the podcast. It's in there, but you can easily get this for free online. So planned early verse, verse expected management for pre-labor rupture of membranes at term, so 30, 37 weeks or more. Now, the background to this paper states that it's not yet clear if waiting for birth to occur spontaneously after prom or if intervening with induction of labor is better. So keep in mind, this review was done in 2017. So, but I mean, it's still only five or six years ago that they were questioning what's better. We're not really sure what we should be doing. Uh, so it was it was not that long ago. So this Cochrane Review found 23 trials to include in the review, but they declared that 20 of them were deemed to be of low quality or at high risk of bias. And only three of the papers were judged to be at low risk of bias. So if a paper is biased, that means it's basically the findings are unreliable. So only three papers were considered to 
kind of have a level of reliability. And with all of the 23 papers combined, there were 8,615 women included. But really, the main paper that included the most numbers to the research was written in 1996, so nearly 20 years ago, in three years, it'll be 20 years ago, and it contributed 5,041 women to the pool. So this paper, thankfully, was one of the three that was at low risk of bias, so one of the better quality research papers. So the rest of the 3,500 women came from the other 22 studies, 20 of which were of poor quality. So really, still the best source of information on the topic of PROM seems to be this paper that was written in 1996, and there's not been a whole lot uh, more high-quality large studies done since then. But, I mean, I'll tell you what Cochrane found because, you know, this is some research that maybe your care provider will be accessing. So the Cochrane paper concluded, and I'm going to read their conclusion just word for word because it pretty much says it all. So there is low-quality evidence to suggest that planned early birth with induction methods reduces the risk of maternal infectious morbidity compared with expectant management for PROM at 37 weeks gestation or later without any apparent increase of cesarean section. So evidence was mainly downgraded due to the majority of studies contributing data having some serious design limitations and for most outcomes, estimates were imprecise. Although the 23 included trials in this review involved a large number of women and babies, the quality of the trials and evidence was not high overall and there was limited reporting for a number of important outcomes. Thus, further evidence assessing the benefits or harms of planned early birth compared with expectant management, considering maternal, fetal, neonatal, and longer-term childhood outcomes and the use of health services would be valuable. So basically saying we actually need a whole lot more good quality research about this before we can make any solid conclusions. So any future trials should be adequately designed and powered to evaluate the effects of short and long-term outcomes. So basically, they don't know. They're just like, look, the the research was pretty dodgy, uh, so it's hard to make conclusions. But they did make a pretty good table with some hard stats, although almost all the stats on the table say that they're from low-quality sources. So I don't know. Can we rely on them? But these are the stats that are going to be in your care provider's mind. It's pretty big, right, because this is something that is very medically managed across the board. It's pretty strict in the way that it's managed. If your water's rupture and you're being cared for by the hospital system, whether that be caseload or fragmented care or private obstetric care, it's a very strict management where if you haven't gone into labour by most hospitals now, it's 18 hours. And induction it is pretty much presented as the only option. Some healthcare providers are getting much better at presenting the other options, but it's definitely the most favourable option. It's the more highly recommended option. Yeah. And this is based on evidence that's 17 years old. And that wasn't actually. And, yeah, very low quality. So when Cochrane pulled all this information of inaccurate, poor quality research, uh, here are the hard stats for anybody who really wants to know numbers. So. 
Maternal infectious morbidity, so that's what they called if you have chorioamnionitis, which is or endometriitis, so in infection in the uterus, essentially. If you wait and do nothing and just wait for labor to start, then 110 women per thousand could expect to experience an infection. How long? It doesn't tell us. It just says that's the expected management group. So that's 11%. Correct. So quite high. Just to break it down, can you just break it down for people listening who don't know what expected management is? So expected management in uh, theoretically is doing absolutely nothing and just waiting for labour to start. But what we will discover later is that in these research papers, which I'm going to talk about, there were people in the expected management group, a high number of people who actually went on to have inductions. So whether or not these stats are actually correct, we don't know. But Essentially, what Cochrane is saying that 110 women per thousand or 11% will go on to experience a maternal infection. If you have an induction, their number says from 36 to 79 women per thousand. So they've averaged it out to 54 women per thousand will have an infection themselves. So still 5.4%. So an induction reduces the risk of maternal infection from 11% to roughly 5.4%. So we're talking maternal infection right now. So the person who is pregnant becoming sick. Correct. Again, please remember this is absolutely very low quality research. So, But these are the stats that will be in your clinician's mind, your care provider's mind. The cesarean section rates for either option seem very similar, so about 15% per 1,000, regardless of which uh, which strategy you choose. Hang on, 15% or 15 per 1,000? 150 per 1,000, so 15. Okay, so 15%. Yeah. Definite, so this is what they've described as Definite early onset neonatal sepsis. So definitely the babies that got infection. If you do nothing, just expectant management, 22 per 1,000 babies will experience an infection. So that's 2.2%. Correct. Versus if you plan an induction, 12 per 1,000. But they've given, they the range is from 5 to 29 and they've averaged it to 12 per 1,000, so 1.2% of babies would. It ranged up to 29, which is higher. Than the expected management group, correct. The expected management group. Yes. Which is 22. Yes. So they concluded in this particular paper that although maternal infection was likely to increase if you do expected management, then definite newborn neonatal sepsis, neonatal infections, didn't seem to increase regardless of which strategy you chose. Which is the whole reason we guide people or it's the whole reason we encourage people to have an induction because we talk about the baby getting sick. Yeah, but really the bigger worry, I think, from from what the research is showing is maternal infections. Then they did this weird bundling of stats which I think is because of the poor quality of the research. They had to work out how they could make a group that they could describe. So then they had a group for definite or probable neonatal infections. So definitely or probably the baby 
was infected. 41 per 1,000 if you were having expected management, so if you're just waiting. or hold, hold up, hold up, hold up. What's the definition of probable? How are you probably infected? This is the issue. And and I'll read you some of the I'll read you some of the critiques of the research. So I went deeper. Not only did I find the papers that Cochrane used, but then I went and found the critiques of the papers that Cochrane used to have a look at what the issues were with the uh, the study design. And one of them is, is that no one can really agree what the picture of an infection looks like in a baby. And everyone used different criteria. And so they weren't standardized research processes. It's not funny. I'm I'm doing what I normally do in these podcasts where we look at something that is so standard, it's so across the board, and it leads to so much intervention. You just look at this and you go, right, all these really strict policies and procedures are based on incredibly low quality evidence. And we do it every day. Like the amount of people. What did we say? There was like 8%, right? 8% eight, eight out of 100 experiences. Mm-hmm. So 8% of people that are birthing yeah, every day are experiencing this and are coming under this management. And then how does that affect the final stages of their pregnancy, their labour and birth, and more importantly for me, the start of that family's journey together? Yeah. So, yeah, who knows what the definition of probably had an infection is, but that's literally the quality of this research. Yeah, they probably had an infection. So 41 per 1,000, definitely or probably had an infection. I, I have so many jokes and I'm not going to go there, <laughs> like what you could probably or definitely yeah, probably. have. And if you had an induction, it would be 30 per 1,000. So that uh, was that four, wait, you can do the math on that, 4.1% if, you didn't have an induction and 3% if you did. Definitely or probably your baby will get an infection. So, yeah, I mean, that's the reason. So the low-quality evidence is saying that an induction does reduce the definite and probable risk of your baby having an infection. 10 less or nine less babies per thousand if you induce, yeah, so if you had an induction. The, I think the main numbers which a lot of the research seem to agree on is the maternal infection seems to be the most likely side effect to having prolonged rupture or like prolonged pre-labor rupture of membranes more so than the baby. And is that looking at postnatal in maternal infection? So is that look what is what is that looking at? Is that looking at Again, infection up until 24 hours, 48 hours? And expected management, does that mean we do not touch you at all? Or are you still getting vaginal examinations? Well, this is one of the complaints with uh, with some of these papers, particularly the big one that contributed the over 5,000 women to the stats, is that when they looked at the group, so you know, usually in randomized control trials, you have this control group. So in their study, it was the expectant management group where they're like, right, we're not going to do anything for these women. Uh, However, then when they looked at those women, over half of them went on to have inductions, but were still included in the expectant management group. And so we don't know if those infections were the reason for the induction. And so, you know, they were showing signs. And so then they were induced or if the induction process did that contributed to that. Also, 
the longer your waters are broken, likely if you're in hospital, the more internal vaginal checks you're going to be getting. And you're also in a very different environment that exposes you to more pathogens. Yeah, I know. And so, I mean, we can have a look at this trial because this trial by Hannah et al. Was, is the one that probably everybody, you know, this is what probably started it all. And the paper's called Induction of Labour Compared with Expectant Management for Pre-Labour Rupture Membranes at Term. So they studied 5,041 women. The women were assigned to induction group or the expected management group. And it says the rates, so what they found was the rates of neonatal infection and cesarean section were not significantly different among the study groups. So the rates of neonatal infection were 2% for the induction with oxytocin group, 3% for the induction with prostaglandin group. Interesting because prostaglandin needs to be inserted into your vagina. So if you just had oxytocin without the prostaglandin, you had 1% less risk of infection. Versus, uh, so the, the expected management group that had oxytocin also. So if you waited but then got induced, it was 2.8% of infections for babies and 2.7% for expectant management with also prostaglandin. So the rates of cesarean section ranged from 96 to 10.9%. Gosh, that's because it was done in 1996. Of course, the rates were that low. Uh, clinical chorioamniotitis, so the woman's infection in the woman's uterus, was less likely to develop in the women in the induction with oxytocin group than in the expected management group. So it was 4% if you were induced or 8.6% if you waited, which kind of roughly correlates to what they found in the Cochrane one where it was roughly double risk of infection for the women if they didn't get induced. Uh, women in the induction groups, well, this is they also looked at their experience and it said women in the induction groups were less likely to say they liked nothing about their treatment than those in the expectant management group. So some women, so basically the experience was better if they'd been induced. Uh, But that's quite possibly because the alternative was a crappy long stay in hospital. I'm just making conclusions by that. So so the conclusion is is that women with pre-labor rupture membranes at term, induction of labor with oxytocin or prostaglandin, and expectant management result in similar rates of neonatal infection and cesarean section. Induction of labor with uh, IV oxytocin results in lower risk of maternal infection than does expectant management, and that women view induction of labor more positively than expectant management. So just waiting. But I would question how many vaginal exams everybody had. The other argument with this paper was that there was no written policy or recommendation for how antibiotics would be used. They just relied on clinicians to make decisions for any of the women as to whether or not they were going to use antibiotics. So we don't know which people had antibiotics and which which didn't in these stats. And so then, you know, whenever somebody writes a paper, there's lots of opportunity. You can write to the editor of a paper and put in a rebuttal against the paper so found like a number of these there was at least four or five people who responded to this paper with some concerns and yeah so one of them I'd already spoken about 
is that in the expected management group, they actually also included inductions. But this is what, interestingly, what this other author said. It said the two strongest associations between infection and pre-labor rupture membranes are the time from the first digital vaginal examination until delivery and the total number of such examinations. Frequent digital vaginal examinations are usually necessary during the induction of labor process, but inductions are quicker. So, yeah, maybe you're going to have less infections because the time from the first vaginal exam to actual birth is shorter. But a cornerstone of previous research on expectant management involved minimizing the number of such examinations. But Dr. Hannah, the author of this, and her associates stated that digital vaginal examinations were avoided. However, their expectant management group underwent significantly more digital vaginal examinations than their induction with oxytocin group. So they did, so this person has commented that it's quite possible that the women who waited had more vaginal exams and therefore more risk of infection and maybe that was the source of infection, not the prolonged rupture membranes. And could be the source of their discomfort or not liking their management, so not liking waiting because we know that vaginal examinations are one of the biggest causes of obstetric violence and birth trauma. Yeah. And then, yeah. And, you know, the other issue here, when we're talking about the biggest finding being maternal infection, somebody else wrote in and suggested that, so they stated, we are concerned that the author's definition of chorioamnionitis, which is this maternal infection, was too liberal leading to the inclusion of women with fever but no other signs of intrauterine infection. So they're saying that they basically just said if you've got a temperature above 37.5, boom, you're in the maternal infection group, you're included in those stats. And so, but fever is not the only sign of an infection. You have to, you know, there's blood tests you can do, C-reactive protein, there's all kinds of tests you can do after the birth. So there was a, a suggestion that the quality of this paper wasn't so good because they actually defined an infection too liberally. So, you know, I mean, what am I saying? I don't know if we've actually given people any helpful information except to say the research is actually not good in the sense that we can't really make very good conclusions. And But what is good is the research mm, I was good. Yeah, on the use of antibiotics. So because that's the next thing that you might be offered. If you choose to decline induction of labour, you're probably going to have it lauded over you while you have to stay in hospital then. Well, we want to put you on antibiotics then or IV antibiotics and they'll give you all these requirements for like, okay, we won't give you induction, but you will have to agree to A, B, C and D. So let's have a look at the use of antibiotics for pre-labor rupture membranes. Does it change the outcomes? We've got a Cochrane paper and it's the most up-to-date paper that uh, is available. And actually, we checked this with Philippa, who we spoke to, who was a Cochrane author, and she agreed, yes, that's the finding. Uh, they were some of my colleagues. So I'm going to read you the... Hang on, we just need to say it's from 2014. It is, but we don't have anything better yet. No. So, you so know, it's almost but, 10 years old. So, Cochrane, we'd like an update, please. Yes, please. Make it snappy. <laughs> Thank you, Cochrane. Thank you. I think it'd be an update would be pretty amazing, actually, because a lot is being done in this space now. Yeah. yeah. So, let's have a look. What did they find? 
let's just go to the author's conclusions because I'm not going to bore you with the method. But this was an updated review. So obviously Cochrane will update their reviews. So they've done an update and it said, this updated review demonstrates no convincing evidence of benefit for mothers or neonates from the routine use of antibiotics for prom at or near term. We are unable to adequately assess the risk assess the risk of short and long-term harms from the use of antibiotics due to the unavailability of data. Given the unmeasured potential adverse effects of antibiotic use, the potential for the development of resistant organisms and the low risk of maternal infection in the control group, the routine use of antibiotics for PROM at or near term in the absence of confirmed maternal infection should be avoided. And I got closer to the microphone for that. Because basically they're saying is don't use antibiotics unless you can confirm the woman has an infection, which, you know, of course, like let's stop using antibiotics prophylactically. We've got an issue where people are developing antibiotic resistance. Sometime in the near future, we're not going to be able to use antibiotics because all the bugs are going to be resistant. So can we just really sparingly keep antibiotics for infections that are actually happening because they're really bloody good medicines. They can stop you from dying from an infection. Absolutely. If you've got infection and it's in your uterus, mate, I don't think a natural therapy is going to save you. I think you need to have some antibiotics. But if you don't have an infection in your uterus, what this paper is saying is we don't currently know the long or short-term effects of wiping out people's microbiome with prophylactic antibiotics, what is that doing to us as a human race? And can we just stop using them when we don't need them? So that's the current research on antibiotics with PROM. And I'm not going to say anything more about that, except for GBS, which we kind of promised I'd come back to. All right, this is a multifaceted issue. B's just going to zone out while I go on a rant about GBS. So if you heard our GBS episode, it it is a really good one to go back to. So if you're sitting there with prolonged rupture membranes or if you're GBS positive and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, what if my my membranes rupture? Go listen to the GBS episode. That'll tell you what we think about GBS screening and GBS management. So if you've declined the GBS screening, then you may still have a problem on your hands because the hospital doesn't like uncertainty. They may treat you as GBS positive because you declined the GBS swab and they may recommend immediate induction. They might offer you like a on-the-spot GBS swab. Some hospitals can do an on-the-spot swab, a little bit like a COVID swab that'll tell you on the spot if you actually have GBS in your vagina. Or what I do, because... One of the risks for your baby getting GBS infection is prolonged pre-labor rupture of membrane, so over 24 hours. So, yes, it's a bacteria. If it gets where it shouldn't be into your amniotic fluid and then gets into your baby and then creates an infection, that's more likely if you've got pre-labor rupture of membranes. So it can be handy to know if you actually have GBS to know whether or not you should do anything about it. So I think it's a bit of a unique circumstance. For me, if one of my clients, their waters break and they don't go into labor, I visit them that day 
offer them a GBS vaginal swap. We can get the results back somewhere within 24 to 48 hours and they can make a decision then as to whether or not they want to have antibiotics or an induction of labour or whether they want to keep waiting based on the results of that. So this is a bit of a grey area. I do think that when your waters break, we know that those babies are at more risk of a GBS infection if you've got GBS. But yeah, go back to that GBS episode for a bit more info on stats and risk and percentages. But it does put you in, if you're in a place that does at-risk screening only for GBS, this would be a risk that might mean that you would choose to have GBS swabbing or not. If you haven't given birth within the 24 hours. Correct. Correct. Because if you give birth within 24 hours, like here in Australia, we, a lot of midwives work by the Australian College of Midwives consultation referral guidelines and pre-labor rupture of membranes in the ACM guidelines is a category B if there's no side of infections, no issues, or category C if the woman's had pre-labor rupture membranes greater than 24 hours. So before 24 hours, it still sits truly, well and truly within a midwifery scope. We don't have to refer. We don't have to consult. We don't have to do anything. We can just do midwifery care. If it goes over 24 hours, it's category B, which even then is just a consult. Category C, if they develop infection, that makes total sense to refer to you know, you escalate their care. Yeah, that's all I got to say about pre-labor. Oh, I've got a bit more. I've got a bit more. So women who are like, what if I decline? How do I go into labor? So if you've declined induction and you're doing expected management and you're waiting to go into labor and you're keen to be in that 95% of women who actually give birth within 72 hours, there are some things you can do. Still do not put anything in your vagina. I would still monitor your temperature every four to six hours. Keep fit. And your loss. And your loss. So put a pad on. Keep having a look at your your amnitation. to yourself and your baby. Exactly. So if any of those change, that could be a sign that you're brewing in an infection. That could be a really good reason to seek medical advice. If none of it changes and you're feeling well and your amniotic fluid is a normal temp- normal smell and normal colour and you've got no temperature and your baby's moving well, I don't believe you have a problem. So how do you get labour started? There is a little bit of research, but it's not really on the side of it. But I always encourage women to have acupuncture to try and get labour going. Do anything that increases your oxytocin and happiness levels. Do something fun. You know, don't have sex. But orgasms, you know, if you could have a clitoral orgasm, that could well and truly. And don't, not penetrative sex or anything into your vagina, but right. clitoral or stimulation and nipple stimulation or anal, because some people do, depending on how their pelvis is wired, or programmed for anal orgasm. Orgasm is the trick because you want that oxytocin peak. You could do raspberry leaf tea because we know that that can help with uterine contractions. Clary sage, essential oil, aromatherapy oil. Do, yeah, you know, some joyful things. Have fun with your children. Eat great food. Have a laugh. Watch a comedy show. Just enjoy. Yeah, I want to say here because so many, and this is like my kind of, I really hate seeing, there's so many Instagram videos of 
people just dancing like crazy on balls and curb walking and doing all that. Again, it comes back to regardless of whether you're choosing a medical model or you want to wait for physiological, how do you want to spend the next 24 hours of your pregnancy? And we have all these things and I, I do love acupuncture and I love massage, but if they're agenda filled and you're doing them just to tick a box, that's your body's not going to interpret that as let's release oxytocin. It has to be real and connection is the best thing that we can do there. So, you know, if, and unfortunately this is what happens when people have that 24 hour mark, they go into that agenda mode, tick box mode. Let's do all the things. Let's try all the things. And often I think you can be so much better just holding your partner's hand looking into their eyes, having a beautiful chat, enjoying the last few moments, hours or days before you become a family or before you your family extends. Yeah. So like having an orgasm for the sake of having one to start your labour, mm. having an orgasm because you're filled with love and it feels good, great. Like make it, do less is what I want to say here. Do do the things you enjoy, connecting with yourself. Oh, yeah, it's so and, hard and the, because... Oh, it's so hard. So much pressure from their care provider. Like, well, if you haven't gone into labor in 24 hours, so yeah. Let's just scrunch up that piece of paper, that checklist, and just get totally present. What does your body feel like it needs? And this is story as well. Yeah. One of my clients, she was actually a midwife and she was full, full term, like ready, ready to have a baby. She had two older children. And she called me one morning. She goes, Mel, my waters have broken. I was like, cool, great. I mean, what do you want to do? She's like, well, can't go into labor today. No, it's my son's birthday and I've got all the food. And it's at, I think it was at like a trampolining gym. He had all his friends coming. He's been really looking forward to it. So not going to do anything. I'm going to do that party. I'm going to that. And then I'll just have my baby tonight. Okay, so cool. No, not having it today. I was like, okay, I mean, sure, if that's what you need to do. So she did it. She just put a pad on, carried on with her day, determined I'm not going into labor right now because I'm busy. This guy's got to have a birthday party before this baby's born. So did that, hosted the birthday party, fed everybody, tidied up, and then just later that night. She didn't go trampolining just so just she, so we're aware. She was just at, she was just at <laughs> like the party. one thing putting your amniotic fluid on someone else's yoga mat, but putting your amniotic <laughs> fluid all around bounce is, yeah. is all next level. I know. And then she just came home and went, I'm going to have a baby. I'm done. I don't need to do. She went into labor and had a baby just at home. Like it was just part of her day. All right. In summary, right? Let's summarize it just to kind of give a really clear and concise, this is what can happen. These are your options. I don't know. Can so, we summarize it? I don't think. Yeah. Waters can break at any time, but if they break and your term and you haven't gone into labor yet, you have options. So our number one thing is to consult with your care provider for sure. We don't want to keep this a secret. Talk to them and monitor your situation. If you are with a private midwife, it's going to look much more different and we'll let them talk with you about it. But if you are being cared for and plan to birth in a hospital, your option is to wait at home if you feel well. So your option is to stay at home and wait and do whatever you feel like you need to wait for spontaneous labor within that time period that you've given yourself. 
which is typically for, for normal physiological range, you've got a 60 to 80% chance to go into labor within that 24 hours. Another option is to go into the hospital. Once you're in hospital, your options don't stop there. You do have options of what you are willing to receive in terms of care. So basic observations like your temperature, monitoring of the fluid, all of that kind of thing, whether or not you have a test to confirm it or whether you are confident that it is your waters. And if you're not confident, have the test, right? The risk factor there is that something has gone into your vagina. And so typically the test is done with a spec. Well, not typically, it is. It's done with a spec. So a spec goes in and, and we do the test that way. And then a CTG, whether you want that or not. And then the options will be presented to you. If you have GBS, even before any of that starts, the preferred option will be to have your labour induced. So if we go without GBS first, if you're GBS negative or you're being treated as negative, your option is to go home and wait spontaneous labour. You will have the option to be induced if you want to, and you may want to. Again, there's no right or wrong, just whatever feels right for you. Uh, there may be the option to take antibiotics and wait. And again, we looked at the evidence on that, but it's up to you. And then if you are GBS positive, again, you've got options. You can wait, you can go home, you can accept induction, you can accept antibiotic cover and still await physiological labour. The antibiotics are given intravenously, so through an IV IV access, so um, a cannula, they're not tablets that you swallow. Is that it? Is that summarised? They're your options, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, and just go, I think, as well, there's some things in maternity care where we can't give you a statistically a statistical or hard reason for choosing either option. I think there's a real call here to tap into what you would normally do for yourself and how you intuitively feel what you want to do because that intuitive knowledge is as good as, if not better, than the current evidence we have and the policies are not necessarily based on evidence because we actually don't have very good so it's okay to see yourself as an authority in this space and make a decision because, you know, the research isn't great. We can't give you a very good reason to accept any of the intervention, just like we can't give you a very good reason to decide to decline everything. So it's up to you guys. As always. Yeah. Yeah. Big love if your waters are currently releasing out of you. Yay. We wish you the most epic birth ahead and a beautiful postpartum and lots of postpartum healing. Thanks, everybody. That was this week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. And B and I will see you in next week's episode. Bye. My my voice is just gone. (laughs) That was a bit. It was long. There's a lot of info, I reckon. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs>